David Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 13 in our series, Exodus. The Exodus story is God's story, and it's our story. What does it look like to create a cohesive thread from the story of Exodus, the New Testament, and our lives? And we're going to be kind of flipping all around the Bible, but Exodus 34 is a good place to turn to. So if you're not there already, turn there now. Um, Hey, so uh, this is the concluding teaching in our summer-long series in the book of Exodus. And we've been saying all summer long that like the Exodus story is also our story. And uh, tonight, we're going to draw on a weird story from Exodus and follow the motif of it that the New Testament picks up and how it applies to all of us. Sound good? Yeah, cool. Okay, so this means we have a bit of Bible work to do. You thought this was the end of Exodus, and we wouldn't have a ton of Bible work to do, but we do, okay? So be ready for that. And uh, also, heads up, um, I'm going to have some questions I'll be asking you guys throughout the teaching that are not rhetorical, okay? So I want to hear your guys' answers loudly. And if you answer wrong, they're not super tricky, but you know, just in case, if you answer wrong, that's okay. Just say it loud and boldly, okay? You'll still get a thumbs up. If, if your answers are right, even better. That means Josh and I have you know, been doing our job the past you know, three months. Um, but uh, I, I just want a little bit more interaction with you guys tonight, is that okay? You guys good for that? Remember, not rhetorical questions. Yeah, you answer these questions. Okay, cool. All right, so look down at Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. Okay, some uh, context here that will be important for our story tonight. Um, remember, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, and they are making a covenant with the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Israel agrees to a covenant with God, but almost immediately, they egregiously break the covenant by making a golden cow, worshiping it, and engaging in revelry. So Moses steps in and mediates between God and Israel. Back in chapter 32, we we read the next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to Yahweh and said, "What what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses uh, puts himself between uh, God's justice and Israel's sin and pleads for forgiveness. It's a bold move. Uh, Moses is willing to die if God decides not to forgive Israel. God responds to him, though, and is willing to continue his relationship with Israel, but there will be consequences and justice for Israel's sin. If you remember then, a little later, after God's favorable answer, Moses, perhaps, I don't know, maybe emboldened by that interaction, asks asks God to, and I quote, show me your what? Glory. Yes, good, good. And thank you for saying it out loud, even if you got it right or wrong. I don't care. Thank you for interacting with me. Show me your glory. 
Josh did a whole teaching on this, so I won't retread all of it, but important for tonight is to remember that glory is kind of a bit of a fuzzy concept to us. In uh, Hebrew and in the early church, it would carry with it the connotation of like a person's weighty presence based on their reputation and who they are. It's like Moses is saying to God, I want to see the real you, not hidden or blocked or shrouded in any way. And God responds by saying that he will cause all of his, and I quote, goodness to pass by Moses, but that Moses would die if he tried to to see it all straight on. So God kind of devises a way for Moses to experience, you know, his glory, his weighty presence, his goodness without dying. And then it happens. Uh, Moses experiences God's glory through his presence and the powerful words of the creator God saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their, their children for the sin of the parents up to the third and fourth generation. Now to us, you know, that last part of God's own description of his glory is probably not the most comforting or encouraging. Uh, But remember, God is painting a mental picture of a scale where on one side, he punishes sin generationally to the third and fourth, and then on the other side of the scale, he maintains love and forgiveness to thousands of generations, and the scale is tilted way crazy to this side. A way we might say this is that God is a thousand times more loving, forgiving, and faithful than he is punishing. Moses seems really emboldened by this new experience of God's glory because his response is really fascinating. In uh, chapter 34, verse 8, it says, Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So uh, notice this. God says that he forgives uh, wickedness and rebellion and sin, and immediately Moses asks God to do just that. And don't miss this as well. So before this experience with God and his glory, Moses bemoans Israel's sin. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin, which is, you know, all true. Moses did not participate in the golden calf event. But now Moses says, forgive our wickedness and our sin. Now it's not just them, but him as well that needs forgiveness. It seems like God's glory invited Moses into repentance rather than fearful hiding. And that's interesting, because I think Moses kind of gets it. God is a thousand times more forgiving and loving than punishing. Now to our story tonight in Exodus 34, verse uh, 29 through 35. After this whole experience with God's glory, Moses comes down Mount Sinai and something is different about him. And this is where things get a bit weird. Uh, You guys ready for some weird Bible stuff? Yeah, okay, cool. 
Okay, so verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. So um, Moses comes down and apparently his face is glowing or shining and it's freaking out his brother Aaron and the rest of the Israelites. And here's, here's kind of the strange thing about this. Well, actually, the more strange thing about this. Uh, whatever is happening to Moses and his face is kind of actually a bit murky and confusing based on the language because the word that would convey the idea of radiance or shining isn't there. Instead, it's the noun horn turned into a verb, which makes the sentence sound nonsensical. And this murky verbiage influenced a whole line of translation and interpretation that Moses, instead of shining, grew horns. In fact, it inspired a lot of medieval art that depicts Moses with horns. This is Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses. Those are horns. Those are horns. And then some medieval, a medieval painting. That's Moses receiving the covenant tablets, and he's got horns, and then he's smashing them still with the horns, even though in the story... It's not chronologically correct, but that's fine. Um, so medieval art, wild. Okay, now, uh, obviously in our culture, if you draw someone with horns, probably doesn't mean they've experienced God's glory, right? It's, that's kind of the opposite. Um, how we go from horns to a shining face is that scholars think the light emitting was almost like horns of light or was shiny like horns, something like that. The horn thing was a sort of metaphor for the shininess of Moses' face. So did it literally glow? Was it bright? Is it just a metaphor for his countenance? Uh, we don't necessarily have all those answers, uh, except that, you know, the biblical authors do not take it as a metaphor for Moses having a positive, positive facial expression, since it scares everyone around him. <laughs> Why? Why does Moses' face glow? Again, not like a direct answer to that, but it seems like there's something about experiencing and being around God's glory that affects a person physically. And think about this. Um, it seems fitting to me that, that humans created to reflect God's image as his image bearers on earth would reflect God's glory. Not just take it in, but soak it in and then emit it out of our very being. But to the Israelites, it's just plain scary. So um, Moses has to reassure all the people so that he can tell them everything that God has told him on Mount Sinai. Verse 31, but Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands Yahweh had given him on Mount Sinai. And this, this kind of dynamic doesn't go away. Moses has to put a veil over his face around the Israelites in order to minimize their fear. Verse 33, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered Yahweh's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with Yahweh. 
For Israel, this is a repetitive theme in Exodus. They are freaked out by God's glory. Whether it's getting close to Mount Sinai or the need for the tabernacle to have the Holy of Holies where God's presence is veiled off, or Moses' face reflecting God's glory back at them, they just can't handle it. They don't want God's presence too close. They need God shrouded. They want some distance from God. And God obliges them. God always puts something in between his presence and the Israelites. Now, the, the religious practices uh, do evolve for Israel to include a once-a-year trek into the Holy of Holies for the high priest, much like Moses braved God's presence on behalf of Israel. But apart from that, God's presence is just veiled off. For Moses, however, his experience of God's glory and presence emboldened him to ask for forgiveness. He emits God's glory, and he keeps going back to meet with God. For an encounter that was described by God as something that could kill Moses, I just find that it's very interesting. That's how it kind of changed Moses. Now, turn in your right to, uh, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. Just head right until you run into it at some point, or table of contents are great too. Remember, um, so this story in Exodus is our story as well, and, and Paul picks up on this shining face of Moses in a fascinating way. Uh, Paul is writing a letter to the church in the city of Corinth, and he's in the middle of explaining why what's come through Jesus and the Holy Spirit is greater than what came through Moses. For us, that honestly probably isn't a huge issue. I don't know many people kind of tempted to live under the Old Testament legal code, but for the church in Corinth who were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, they needed to understand how Jesus fulfilled and carried forward what's happening in the Exodus story. And this goes back to the idea of covenant. Give me two minutes or so to do a little theology that will help us understand what Paul is writing about. Are you guys cool with that? Cool. All right, let's do it. All right. So uh, God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. He did this because he had previously made a covenant with who back in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham. Yeah, I would accept Abram as well. Abraham, though, it's great. Right. Okay, so God makes a covenant with Abraham that is carried forward to his descendants. And his descendants, the Israelites, then make their own covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And this covenant had stipulations for both parties. God had to be faithful and Israel had to be faithful. Uh, the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai was conditional and revocable, meaning it could be broken and done away with if one of the parties you know, Israel, uh, failed to uphold their end of the covenant. But when you're in a covenant relationship with a God that's a thousand times more forgiving and faithful than he is punishing, you can expect a lot of patience, which is what Israel experienced from God for hundreds of years as they continually broke the covenant. If you think the golden calf incident with the Israelites at Mount Sinai was bad, they eventually built 
two permanent shrines with golden cows for the people to make a pilgrimage to and worship, declaring that they were the gods that brought Israel out of Egypt. And this sort of stuff goes on for hundreds of years. Idolatry, rebellion, societal injustice, political corruption, you name it. And finally, finally, God has enough and the covenant is broken. Israel goes into exile. The temple, which was intended to house God's presence, is destroyed. It's utter disaster and devastation. And Hebrew prophets, before this all happens, begin to prophesy about the need for a different new covenant with God, one that would replace the Mosaic covenant that Israel was trampling. But as Israel eventually returns to the land after exile, they go back to trying to fulfill the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant and with mixed results at best. Fast forward a few hundred years after the exile to Jesus, and he's walking around a Jewish society that's a bit confused and divided about how to relate to God. Some feel they must strictly observe the Mosaic Covenant once again, faithfulness through observance of the law found in the Mosaic Covenant will bring about God's Messiah. Others feel that uh, the time of the covenants has more or less passed and the Jewish people must shrewdly navigate the world the best they can under their own steam. Others waited for an apocalyptic day of the Lord, God's swift judgment that would come and rescue Israel from sin and foreign political powers. But Jesus comes to do something that ties all the loose strands of God's story together into something new, into a new covenant. One that was prophesied about, one that would enable and empower everyone through God's presence and spirit toward faithfulness. The Mosaic covenant with all its laws was a good thing for what it was, but its time is now over. Through Jesus, God picks up those shattered pieces of the old covenant and makes something new. That's all in the back of Paul's mind as he's writing to the church in the city of Corinth. This new covenant through Jesus is better than what Moses could do and what he symbolizes. And Paul draws from this bizarre story from Exodus 34 to illustrate that point. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. You guys good? Cool. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope that is in, you know, the new better covenant through Jesus, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. So there's a dichotomy happening between these two things. On the one hand, the, uh, the new covenant in Paul's mind empowers followers of Jesus to have boldness. But don't think of a character trait, like a type A personality. Uh, This is a boldness as a way of life due to what the new covenant means and does for us. There is a security in the new covenant that makes this boldness not only possible but sensible. We have forgiveness and new life through Jesus. We are good with God. We can have boldness. On the other hand, Paul draws from Moses and and points out how the Mosaic Covenant did not empower the Israelites with boldness. Paul, looking back on the history of Israel, can see that the Mosaic Covenant is something temporary. 
And he finds Moses' shining face as a type of metaphor for the temporary quality of the covenant. At some point, Moses died and his face stopped shining. At some point, Israel failed and the Mosaic covenant ended. And in the early church, where the lines were blurry, blurry between Jewish people and Christians, Paul points out a huge distinction. But there, that is the Israelites, minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Without Jesus, there remains a veil of misunderstanding the point of the Mosaic law. The law can never save someone. It's the way God wanted the nation of Israel to be in relationship with him, but it's not salvation. In the story of Exodus, what event marks the salvation of Israel from slavery? Crossing of the Red Sea. One person was brave enough, and he nailed it. Good job, Levi. The crossing of the Red Sea. And follow-up question, did the crossing of the Red Sea come before or after the covenant at Mount Sinai? Before, yeah. The law teaches the Israelites how to be in a covenant relationship with the God who rescues them from slavery, but it does not rescue them. Verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What's the opposite of slavery? Freedom. freedom. Jesus removes the veil that shrouds God's glory and presence, and we can receive it. It's the presence of God that brings freedom, not the law. Verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All of us can read the story of Exodus and, and contemplate and understand, not look away from or cover up God's glory, his, his goodness. No, this glory is changing us bit by bit, day by day, God with us through the Spirit, not on top of Mount Sinai, not a, a one-time life event. The same presence of God Moses experienced is now something we experience. We experience the compassionate and gracious God. We receive God's forgiveness, the God who is a thousand times more forgiving and loving than he is punishing. And not only does he forgive us, he dwells in us. We are now his tabernacle. Inside of us is the Holy of Holies. The story of Exodus is also our story. But, you know, how is it our story? How is it, you know, my story? Uh, sitting with this text, uh, you know, it reminds me, um, of a Starbucks not far from my house. You know, the, the burnt coffee mixing with the sweet syrup smell? Anyone know that one? Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a, a few years ago sitting in that Starbucks by my house, uh, miserable. <laughs> not because I was sitting in Starbucks, by the way. <laughs> 
you know, I don't remember why I was at that Starbucks. Obviously, probably had something to do with coffee. Maybe I was early for a meeting or something like that. But um, there I was, sitting and staring at this wall. And in my mind was running through all the reasons I was failing at being a Christian and a professional Christian to boot, you know, a pastor, somebody paid to do this thing. And I was in the middle of kind of this years-long season of something called the dark night of the soul where my felt sense of God's presence was mostly absent. Not because I was neglecting spiritual disciplines and rhythms, not because I was, you know, depressed or struggling with some other mental health challenge, not because of any particular sin that I was unwilling to repent of and yet kept choosing to do and participate in. I was doing all the right stuff on paper the best I knew how. And yet, God still felt distant and had for a while. And I was sitting there uh, feeling, you know, just miserable and, and hollow and um, thinking about all the ways that, you know, despite my best efforts, I sin. That my character is still bent and broken in some ways, which cause pain for myself and others. You know, remembering the hurtful, hurtful things I've done and said and thought and all that stuff was not wrong. It was right. I was not wallowing in self-loathing. I, I, was, I was just objectively seeing kind of that sinful stuff past and present, just that brokenness. And this heavy sense of uh, unworthiness just sat on my shoulders as I sat in that Starbucks. And I thought that clearly God probably felt the same way about me since I had not felt his presence in a while despite my best efforts. And I was sitting there staring at this wall and then I felt like Jesus kind of spoke to me in my mind. And, you know, funnily enough, he didn't speak uh, comforting things like, hey man, you're not actually that bad. Um, or try to reframe some of my junk like, yeah, you know, you can be judgmental sometimes, but it's just really high standards. It was more as if he just sat there nodding his head and he just said, yes, you are unworthy based on that stuff. I was like, cool, thanks, Jesus. That's what I would love to hear from you right now. But then he said, you know, to paraphrase, uh, but you can't ever make yourself worthy. You are worthy because I've made you worthy. You are worthy because I say that you are worthy. And I heard that and I just, in that moment, just that weight on my shoulders of just the, the hollowness, the just, uh, I could just feel it just lift just in that moment. And I'm still sitting there staring at the wall at Starbucks. Um, and, and, and he says just one more thing that shifted my whole perspective of experiencing kind of this dark night of the soul. Again, kind of to paraphrase, he said, um, because I've made you worthy, it's true whether it feels like it or not. And I want you to learn to trust that. And, you know, the season that I had been in and then the season that I was still gonna be in for, for a while, but it, something changed, it just like clicked. 
God's teaching me to trust what he says is true about me and not my momentary fleeting feelings about myself. And over time, I've grown in that confidence in trusting what God says about me and about others, and I've you know, just uh, learned and am continuing to learn that that instinct to pull away from God or to assume that he's pulling away from me when I feel ashamed or less than, or when I want some type of separation from God, those are the times I need to draw near and experience his glory and his presence the most. The glory that he describes himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents up to the third and fourth generation. God is a thousand times more forgiving, loving, and faithful than he is punishing. Now, maybe you resonate with your own version of that feeling of unworthiness, and maybe you don't. Maybe this story makes you think of something else completely in your life, and that's fine. I also know there are a number of stories and experiences of people accepting God as forgiving and faithful and loving, and it seems to lead to complacency. You lack a sense of importance or urgency in your relationship with God. You know, God's good with you, and you can just do your thing and say, hey, occasionally, like he's, you know, a neighbor that you see in passing. You know, maybe you drop into church occasionally, you show up to to your community for the food and hang out, but, but check out when the group starts talking about the spiritual stuff. And, and I have no idea why you're like that, but it does just kind of make me really curious about whether you've ever had an experience with God's glory and with his presence. What was that like? Was it scary? Was it hard? What about the people around you who maybe also have had, ex had experiences with God's glory? You know, was, was it intimidating to have that around you? It just makes me wonder. I don't have answers, but if you think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm to all of this, you know, I, I'd really encourage you to kind of sit with that, with Jesus, to talk about it with friends, with your community, because like Moses, an encounter with God's glory and presence invites repentance and connection with God. You know, fear, sin, or just kind of hardness of heart can lead us to want to put something between God and ourselves, a veil. But I don't want you to leave, uh, to leave you guys with the wrong impression as we're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul talks about this boldness of conduct, this confidence in his standing with God through Christ, that feeling isn't always experienced. Paul talks about a lot of different feelings he has throughout his letters, love, gratitude, peace, joy, anger, despair, hope. Our experience of God changes and ebbs and flows over time. So, don't hear this as some sort of idealized picture of a Christian that you need to try to be. You need to try to be bold. 
In fact, um, can I ask everyone here uh, to just go out on a limb with me for a second? Um, and would you raise your hand if you've ever felt in the entirety of your relationship with Jesus that something between the two of you, between you and Jesus, was off? Can you just raise at some, yeah. Okay, thanks. And then um, if you're willing, how about in the last year, raise your hand if you felt something big or small between you and God, something hindering or detracting or clouding your relationship with him in the last year. Yeah, okay. And then one more, uh, if you're willing, go ahead and raise your hand if you feel that way right now, big or small, something between you and God in the moment. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. You know, there's a, a lot we end up going through in life that we would never choose for ourselves. Unintended consequences, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, being born into what seems like the wrong family, business failure, pursuing a dream that turns into a nightmare, betrayal, a really sick kid, singleness that wasn't your plan, a lonely, crumbling marriage, mental illness, a death of a loved one. You know, all, all of the things that can make a story about Moses' glowing face feel so trite, so detached from reality. Sure, in, in my most spiritual moments, connecting, you know, intimately with, with Jesus through his spirit and worship and delight and, you know, him speaking to me and me speaking back to him. And, you know, a lot of times with like tears of joy and gratitude, I feel bold then. I can imagine myself reflecting God's goodness to others around me. And then sometimes I feel bored with God. I don't feel like I have much to say or that my mind wants to fix its attention on anything else but contemplating him. Sometimes I feel so frustrated or so hurt that my prayers quickly turn into my complaints of injustice that I feel like have been done to me, you know, creating visuals of how I've been wronged or how I'm right opposed to the other person or the other people. And I'm Israel, wanting a veil to cover God's glory. I have other things to think about. I have other things to do. Life is too busy. Life is too hard. Life is too painful. But here's why Exodus as a whole is so profound, why we would take the summer to sit with the whole book rather than a story here or there. Moses isn't just the guy with the glowing face. He's born into genocide, rescued by the very people committing the genocide. He's a murderer, He's frightened of the role and the responsibility God asks him to take on, and he needs his brother by his side. He seems at times to me impatient and cantankerous. And then he's also bold enough to ask God to show him his glory. And Moses experiences God's glory and his face glows. And because his face glows, He's somewhat alienated from his community. How do you think that felt? It seems to me like a, a mixed bag to have this amazing experience, but you have to keep your face covered around other people because it freaks them out. 
I still think it's worth it, but not necessarily easy or painless or straightforward. Eventually, if you keep reading the narrative after the book of Exodus, this glowing face guy, Moses, messes up and is not allowed to enter the promised land. He dies beforehand. God's presence and glory in our lives does not guarantee success or a fairly painless, happy life. It does not mean we always feel bold or confident even when we have good reasons to theologically feel those things. And it does not always seem or feel like we are being transformed into the image of Christ. You know, reading the Exodus account, I just find it interesting how many times Moses begs and pleads with God to go with Israel, to not leave them, to be present with them despite their unfaithfulness. You know, we may not feel God, but the new covenant assures us that God goes with us through everything. And not just as a present observer. He is present, or if he is present, that means he is working and doing all the kinds of things that he said he would. He rescues, he redeems, he helps, he heals, he holds accountable, he forgives. He is faithful. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.